Chapter 34, we'll be looking at verses really 14 through 35. We left off in verse 14 last week where God declared he is a jealous God. God's jealousy and our jealousy, they're really on different ends of the spectrum. We're jealous usually for our own selfish desires. God's jealousy is a jealousy for our benefit. God knows the beginning from the end, knows what lays ahead of us, and knows what our future is if we begin to embrace false gods. God has a requirement from being a jealous God. He has requirements for us, his people. One, he will not be one of the gods that we worship. God will not allow any true believer to reject him and relegate him into a secondary role in our lives. And he, if he doesn't correct us right away, he will correct us eventually. So we can't push God aside as his people. He won't accept a second place in our life. And God will even sometimes give us over to the passion of our lives. Uh, if for no other reason to just simply show us the folly of passions apart from him. As believers, we're very special to our God. God desires that each and every one of us live a life that has meaning. A life beyond what I, I like to call our shallow accumulations. Now, our accumulations can be things like a career position, uh, materialistic possessions. They can even be relationships. And recently, when I was speaking to a fellow believer, he expressed to me that he was pleased to say that his wife loved God more than him. And I knew where he was coming from. A godly spouse is not someone that we're jealous of. We're not jealous of their relationship with God. But as we read our passage today, note how practical God is with his people Israel. So let's read verses 14 through 28 of chapter 34. For you shall worship no other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and they play the harlot with their God, and make sacrifices to their God. And one of them invites you in to eat of his sacrifices, and you take of his daughters for your sons, and his daughters play the harlot with their gods, and make your sons play the harlot with their gods. You shall make no molded gods for yourself. The feast of unleavened bread you shall keep. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread as I have commanded you in the appointed time of the month of Abib. For in the month of Abib you came out of Egypt. All that opens a womb are mine. Every male firstborn among your livestock, whether ox or sheep. 
but the firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. And if you will not redeem him, then you shall break his neck. All the firstborn of your sons shall, you shall redeem, and none shall appear before me empty-handed. Six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. In plowing time and harvest you shall rest. And you shall observe the feast of weeks of the first fruit of wheat harvest and the feast of ingathering at the year's end. Three times in the year all your men shall appear before the Lord, the Lord God of Israel. For I will cast out the, the nations before you, enlarge your borders, neither will any man covet your land when you go to appear before the Lord your God three times a year. You shall not offer blood of my sacrifice with leaven, nor shall the sacrifice of the feast of the Passover be left until morning. For the first of the first fruit of your land you shall bring to the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write these words, for according to the tenor of these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. So he was... There with the Lord, forty days and forty nights, he neither ate bread nor drank water, and he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. God gives Israel, his people, his wisdom concerning relationship with unbelievers. When a believer enters a relationship with the idol-worshiping unbeliever, God has a word for it, and he calls it harlotry. When, God, when God's people sacrifice or worship a false god, our God considers that person as playing the harlot. Strong words as to the feelings of God who calls himself a jealous God. Unfortunately, one of the wisest, most knowledgeable men of all time fell into the trap of spiritual harlotry. It's good to be knowledgeable. Education is good. It's good to know the pitfalls of sin and how Satan tries to lure us into the spiritual harlotry, as God calls it. And we desperately need the help of the Holy Spirit in our lives to lead us not into temptation. And we should be praying for that help. And we should be praying for that on a consistent basis. The wise man who fell into spiritual harlotry was none other than King Solomon. Let me read you a verse from Nehemiah chapter 13, verse 26. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin by these things? Yet among many nations there was no king like him, who was beloved of his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, pagan women caused even him to sin. Nevertheless. Wouldn't you? I bet Solomon wished that word was never in there when it speaks of him. Nevertheless, pagan women caused Solomon to, spin, to sin, despite all of his wisdom, all of his knowledge, all of his, I know better than that. What a sobering testimony it is of Solomon 
for us as believers how we should be dependent upon God and His Spirit, not upon wisdom and knowledge, not upon the gray matter. It's good to know things, but when it comes to having the strength to withstand temptation, that comes from our Lord. And Jesus told us to pray for that. God will continue to instruct Moses about feast days, the feast of the unleavened bread, feast of weeks, feast of harvest, which is similar to our Thanksgiving, by the way. And these feasts would go on for a week, and there were three of them during the year. And all the male, all the men were to, required to appear before God at this time. Thanksgiving, perhaps my favorite holiday, a simply uh, a time to give thanks, uh, not required to get that perfect gift for whoever. <laughs> but then Thanksgiving is followed by Black Friday, the most materialistic holiday, and you can call it that, I guess, of the entire year. And you notice they crep it over into Thanksgiving Day itself. Now you can have Black Friday start on Thursday afternoon. How nice. I'm glad my wife has everything she needs and we don't have to go get those kind of things. So. I tell you another one I don't like long as we're here and we're just talking face to face. <laughs> I don't like the X in Xmas. Come on, it's a Christian holiday. Say Christmas, you know. But anyway, Israel has holidays. They have feast days. And it didn't matter if you were rich or poor. You were required by God to celebrate these feasts. Three feasts a year. You had a three-week vacation, whether rich or poor, in Israel. God requires all of Israel, take a break from your busy life and celebrate the fact that I'm your God and that you're my people. And this is before Israel is even in the promised land. In fact, they're barely out of Egypt. And God is laying out times of celebration. And then we have God moving on to what belongs to him. First, the firstborns, <laughs> all the firstlings, all the ones that opened that womb first in your livestock belong to God, and they're to be sacrificed to God. Why would God put this restriction on the life? Because God is broke and he needs our offerings. No. <laughs> a thousand times no. But why does God put such an emphasis on? upon giving and he does throughout the scripture because giving keeps our lives in balance giving is contrary to the sin of selfishness and greed if you had a donkey and this donkey was born into your herd you were to redeem this donkey with a lamb donkey being more valuable than a lamb Sacrifice a lamb in the place of this donkey. God allows it. He says, hey, I don't want donkeys. Sacrifice a lamb and keep your donkey. Uh, 
And if you were not willing to sacrifice a lamb for that donkey, then you were to kill that donkey. You were actually to break its neck. And then God goes on. He says, that's the animal kingdom, he says. But all of your firstborn sons, they're mine. For none were to appear before God at these feast times empty-handed. God had requirements. You don't come in here and worship and sacrifice to me empty-handed. God required worship and sacrifice to be given to him. In Luke chapter 2, uh, let me read you just three verses there about Jesus and Mary and Joseph. Now when the days of her purification according to the law of Moses were completed, they brought Jesus to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As is written in the law of the Lord, every male who opens a womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons, and that was if you could not afford a lamb. When Jesus is eight days old, Mary and Joseph bring Jesus to the temple to offer sacrifices for him according to the Mosaic law, according to the law given to Moses. And Mary and Joseph, they're very poor. And they were allowed to offer two pigeons or two turtle doves versus a lamb. Now think about this. This is required of Mary and Joseph, even though Jesus is the Son of God. Mary and Joseph are obedient to the law. Verse 26, God tells Moses the people are to bring the first fruits of the land to the house of God. A real key there is the first fruits, not the leftovers, not the remainder, the first things. We all try to budget our incomes, and what we give to God should be the first priority, not the last. Bring your first fruits. Whatever is left over, God will bless. But he wants that first. He wants the top. He don't want the leftover, the remainder. God demanded the firstborn and the first fruits from Israel. And that demand is still in place today. God declares, if you will give the first fruits, I will bless what you have left over. And that's a promise that we should never object to. Any believer who is selfish towards giving to God, and let me say this as delicately as I can, are you crazy? Have you lost your mind? You can never outgive God. He will not allow that. No, he will not be a debtor to a man. You can't outgive God. I desperately desire God's blessing on what I call the 90% left over for me. There are business people, there are wealthy people who never attend church, 
who do not even call themselves a Christian, who practice tithing. Why do they do that? Because it's a principle of God that he honors. He honors anyone that will give of their first fruits to him. It's one of those things that he does. And so we have business people and businesses who will put this principle into effect. Giving our first fruits simply allow us to bring our everyday life into the relationship with our Lord, into that covenant that God made with Israel, what, 3,000 years, 3,500 years ago? But understand this. I'm not up here pleading for your money. If you cannot give cheerfully, don't give. Point blank. Don't do it. Because it does you no good in the eyes of the Lord if you cannot give cheerfully. Okay? Enough about giving. Verse 27, God instructs Moses, write these commands of mine in the tenor or in, in the heart of me as to my people. Moses was there on Mount Sinai 40 days and 40 nights. And he doesn't partake of food or water. Now that will kill you unless God supernaturally sustains you. You cannot exist 40 days without water. And there's an effect on Moses being with God for 40 days on this mountaintop. And let's read about it in verses 29 through 35. Now it was so when Moses came down from Mount Sinai... And the two tablets of the testimony were in Moses' hand when he came down from the mountain, that Moses did not know that his, the skin of his face shone while he talked with him. So when Aaron and all the children of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near. Then Moses called to them, and Aaron, to all the rulers of the congregation, returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterwards, all the children of Israel came near, and he gave them commands all the Lord had spoken with him on Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil on his face. But whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would take the veil off until he came out, and he would come out and speak to the children of Israel whatever God had commanded. And whenever the children of Israel saw the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face shone, then Moses would put on the veil on his face again until he went in to speak with God. Moses literally glows. <laughs> his face shines, uh, especially when he has just come out from the presence of God. Moses is so aglow that all the rulers of Israel are afraid to come near him. Now, that's some powerful shine that this man has got on. <laughs> Moses, he would call them to himself, and he would speak to the rulers, and then he would speak to the people. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 13, gives us insight into this. It tells us, Moses would put a veil over his face so the people would not see the glow fading. 
Can you imagine? Moses, he's your notorious leader. You see Moses walk by, his face is glowing. Then the next day, hey, Moses is not quite as bright as he was yesterday. He's losing his shine. <laughs> Have you seen him lately? He's not quite as shiny. <laughs> Moses' glow of his face was an indicator to everyone of him being in the presence of God shortly before they see him. Moses would go in and he would take the veil from his face to talk with God. There's a lesson there for us. Be honest and open before God. Don't be veiled. You've heard prayers. I've heard prayers where people are talking in Christianese. <laughs> and they're not being honest with God about what they feel or even what they want. And they kind of use deceptive type of words. Be unveiled before you, when you come before God. Be honest. Be open. Be yourself. God appreciates it. But you know, Moses removed that veil to talk with God, but we come in here on Sunday mornings. We put on the happy face. <laughs> and we're all smiles. And through conversation, sometimes we realize that not everything is so good. Things are going bad in our lives. Be real. We're to be real for one another. If a brother or sister need prayer, pray for them. Uh, it's good for us to be transparent before one another. In the book of Acts, we have the day of Pentecost that has come. Peter has preached a sermon. 3,000 souls are added to God's kingdom. The whole city of Jerusalem is in an uproar. And we find Peter and John going up to temple to pray. And they're confronted by the lame man who sits at the temple gate each and every day begging alms. In Acts 3, 6, 3, 6 Peter declares, We don't have silver or gold, but what we have we're going to give you. In the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. You ever think about that? If they would have had silver and gold, the man would not have received his healing. Sometimes God has to get us in a position where we all we have is him. This healing of this notorious lame man, it gets the attention of the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem. So turn with me to Acts chapter 4, and we're going to go through some verses there. And I think you'll find it interesting as we look at Peter and John as they encounter the religious leaders of Jerusalem. Acts 4, verse 1. Now as they, Peter and John, spoke to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them, being greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. The Jewish high priest was a Sadducee. 
Sadducees did not believe in angels. They didn't believe in resurrection. They were very, very strict in their beliefs. Verse 3, and they laid hands on them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. However, many of those who heard the words believed, and the number of men came to be about 5,000. So great revival is going on in Jerusalem. And it came to pass on the next day that the rulers and elders and scribes, as well as Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, and as many as were the family of the high priest, were gathered together in Jerusalem. And when they had set Peter and John in the midst, they asked, By what power or by what name have you done this? Speaking of the miracle. The chief priest wants to know, by what authority, by what power, or in whose name you have done this miracle. Verse 8, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders of Israel, If we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has been made well, And Peter has a question for the religious leaders. Are we on trial for doing a good deed? Now, that's a good question. <laughs> and then Peter continues, verse 10, Let it be known to all and all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands before you here whole. This is a stone which was rejected by the builders, which has become the chief cornerstone, nor is there salvation in any other name, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. The religious leaders have just been confronted and stumped by fishermen. Now when they saw, verse 13, the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, untrained men, that they marveled. But here, here's the whole reason we read this passage. And they realized that they had been with Jesus. What a great thing to, to say of Peter and John. The disciples have been with Jesus, and it causes the chief priests and scribes to marvel. They're amazed. Being with Jesus has elevated these disciples into men of education and authority. And they have the lame man that stands there with them as proof of the power of Jesus Christ, whom God has resurrected. Verse 14, And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, the chief priests and scribes could say nothing against it. They could say nothing. 
But when they had commanded him to go aside out of the council, they conferred among themselves, saying, What shall we do with these men? For indeed, that a great noble, uh, notable miracle has been done through them is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But so that it spreads no further among the people, let us severely threaten them that from now on they speak to no man in this name. So they called them and commanded them not to speak at all nor teach in the name of Jesus. Well, that doesn't go down well with Peter. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. When you have been with Jesus, when you have a relationship with the living God, you cannot help but speak of him. That is a truth. That is a great response. Let me get you to stand. We'll close in prayer. Father God, I would pray that each of us would have such a relationship with you and with Jesus that it would be evident to all those around us. We want to glorify you, Lord. We want to be that good witness. We want to have a testimony on our lips of the goodness of God. And so we need to spend time with you, Lord where the world can see what we're about, what makes us tick, what gets us out of bed in the morning. Lord, it's your love, it's your goodness to us, and we can't help but talk about it. So cause us to be bold. Don't let us be timid or shy in proclaiming the goodness of you to those around us, Lord. The religious leaders could see that Peter and John had been with you, Jesus. The people of Israel could see their leader, Moses, because his face glowed. They could see that he had been with you. And we want those around us to see, to understand that we have been with you, our Lord and our Savior. And we pray for this and we ask for this. In your name, Jesus. Amen. If you have